0: A little over five years ago as we were approaching our 100th episode of the copywriter club podcast kira and i were trying to think of who would be an amazing guest to celebrate that 100th episode of the show and there are some really good even famous copywriters who came to mind It's too bad that David Ogilvie wasn't alive because he definitely would have made the cut. But this show is about more than copywriting. It's also about marketing and showing up and making a difference in the world. And when we added those considerations to the list, one obvious choice stood out. Seth Godin. You know Seth. He's been a vocal advocate for making art, or as Steve Jobs once said, making a dent in the universe. Much of Seth's career, certainly for the last decade, has been all about encouraging people to make their art and make a difference in the world. So I reached out to Seth and I asked him if he'd be our 100th guest, and I think it was about 20 minutes later, I got a reply back. I, I actually still have it. In fact, just let me, let me just read what he said. He wrote, I can happily do this, but my publisher has asked me not to have any new podcast interviews until November. Can we record it soon, but have it come out then? That timing meant that Seth wouldn't be our 100th guest, but we weren't about to say no to him. And in fact... As it turns out, that timing actually worked in our favor. As you can imagine, Seth appeared on a lot of podcasts around the same time ours went live, all to promote his new book. But because we recorded our podcast interview with him five months earlier, we didn't actually have the book. And so we couldn't ask him questions about the book. And that meant that our interview was very different from all of the others that went live at the same time. It's been more than five years since we recorded this interview with Seth, but I have to tell you that I go back and listen to it more than any other episode that we've recorded ever. Seth's advice on making art, owning the work we do, doing the difficult emotional work, building spec projects, and what happens when we don't do those things is even more important today than it was when we recorded this interview five years ago. Now, this is where I would usually mention the Copywriter Underground, and I'm not going to do that today because I want to give you something as a thank you for being a regular listener to the show. Uh, Just after the new year, we're going to launch the Copywriter Accelerator. It's not a course. It's an eight-part business building program designed to help you build a six-figure business that works for you. I'm not going to tell you all of the things it includes here. You can find all of that information at thecopywriteraccelerator.com. But I will share an exclusive code only available to you as a podcast listener. This is the only place that we're sharing this code. If you go to thecopywriteraccelerator.com and enter the code, pod 200, that's P-O-D 200, you'll save $200 off the price of that program. That's pod 200 at the thecopywriteraccelerator.com. And you can find a lot more details about what the program includes there. Be sure to check it out. And if it's a fit, join using that code pod 200. Okay. Now, we hope that you enjoy this incredible interview with Seth Godin.
1: We're very excited and honored that you're a part of our show. And before we started recording, we just shared with you that you've been such a big influence in our careers and also in creating the Copywriter Club. So my, my palms are sweaty and I'm thrilled that you're here.
2: All right. Well, I'll do my best. That's a pretty high expectation, but we'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs>
0: you're you're going to deliver. We feel good about this. So.
1: All right. So to kick this off, you know, you talk about becoming a category of one on your, your own podcast And you mentioned doing quirky work, and that really stood out to me. What does that mean, and how can freelancers do that?
2: Well, there are two kinds of freelancers. There are freelancers who seek to have a job without a boss. That's most freelancers. And then there's freelancers who actually make a living, make an impact, bend the curve. And it's fun to talk about being the second kind, but there's a cost to it. And I think distinguishing between the two is really important. More than ever, because there are laptops, because there's an internet, more than ever, people feel like they can make a living on their own in the world, that plenty of people who are professional copywriters used to be on the client side. They go, whoa, I just paid that person $1,000. If I only did that 60 times a year, I could make a living. And so off they go. And their motto is, you can hire anyone and I'm anyone. And the problem with that motto is it's based on a mindset of scarcity, a scarcity of information, a scarcity of choice, the scarcity that comes from geography. And in my little town, there's only one florist. So yeah, if you want flowers, you got to buy it from the florist, but it's not true for copywriters. There's no scarcity. So the alternative is to do the scary work of intentionally not being in the middle, intentionally not saying to the client, what would you like? I'm happy to do it for you. Because if that's your approach, then they'll just find someone cheaper than you. Whereas the alternative is no, this is my work. This is how I do my work. I'm the one and only at this work. And if you want this work, that's what you get from me. That's different. It's a whole different way
0: of being in the marketplace. Can we talk a little bit about that other kind of freelancer too? Because I think it's really important to realize that you know when we're that kind of freelancer that doesn't want a boss, a lot of times we actually end up creating a job with the worst boss of all and that is ourselves.
2: Exactly. That most freelancers have an enemy inside and this is the person who not only relentlessly criticizes them, their work ethic, their approach, their quality of their work, but then when it's time to do the difficult emotional labor of building a career, says, nah, we worked really hard today. Let's just go out for drinks. So on one hand, the boss is pushing you too hard and bringing shame along. And on the other hand, the boss isn't pushing you hard enough and making it easy to hide.
0: So how do we make ourselves then that second kind of freelancer? You know, what are the things that we need to do to really step into that role?
2: Well, I think it begins by acknowledging that you're not very good at what you do right now. You're at the 80% level, that there are plenty of people who do what you do. And many of them are faster and cheaper and more experienced than you. I mean, that's just sheer math. It's got to be true. So, when I started out as a book packager, you know, I had a a Mac. I knew sort of how to set type. I had an MBA from fancy business school. I said, I'm ready to go, but I wasn't good at it for seven more years. But if you are self satisfied and say, well, why aren't they getting the gigs and I'm not? Life isn't fair. Then you're not going to be able to sharpen your knife and and hone your skills to admit that, in fact, you could be a lot better at this. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is you got to say no a lot. You will become the sum of your clients. You can define a freelancer's life by who their clients are. When you have great clients, they push you to do better work, which gets you even better clients, and they pay a lot because they're happy to, because it's worth it. When you have lousy clients, they're in a hurry. They don't push you at all, except on price. And the kind of work they want you to do doesn't get you more clients, because it's mediocre. So you have to be able to say to lousy clients, sorry, I'd love your money, but I don't want to work for you, because you're a lousy client. And then you've got to use your downtime to work on spec to earn the attention of great clients.
1: Can you talk a little bit more about that, the downtime working on spec to get the better clients? Because I feel like that's where a lot of copywriters in our club get stuck.
2: Well, in the old days, in order to be a copywriter, you needed a a bag of gold because you needed to buy a list and buy stamps. So it would be really hard, for example, to effectively prove to L.L. Bean that you could write catalog copy and form letters that would make L.L. Bean sales go up because it would have cost you tens of thousands of dollars to run that test on your own. But today, you could build a website and have that website attract people and connect people and earn people's attention until you had 5,000 people in the fly fishing club. Once you'd earned the attention of 5,000 people in the fly fishing club, you're not going to have any trouble at all getting great clients in the fly fishing industry. Because all by yourself for free, you earn the attention of 5,000 high value individuals. That's the kind of spec work I'm talking about. Or if you don't want to view it as an online club, find a charity you believe in, show up and raise them $10 million. And after you've raised them $10 million for free, now you have part of your portfolio that lets you walk to the next charity and say, I'm so good at this. I raised $10 million for these guys. And if I can't raise $10 million for you, don't pay me. And by the time you've done that five times in a row, then you really are the best at this. Not at anything, but at this, at this specific thing. And that's how you can carve out a career.
0: Yeah, I think you've just kind of answered this question. I was thinking, you know, on your podcast, you talk a lot about being a category of one. And a lot of times you'll talk about artists, you know, who are, you know, doing a daily painting or, you know, doing something that's very specific. And I think sometimes copywriters will hear that and say, well, yeah, but I'm not just art. I'm also commerce. And so the kinds of clients that I'm working with don't allow me to do that kind of, you know, a daily art or stand out in that kind of unique way. Are there ways that we can approach our clients in the commerce world that really do help us stand out from you know, 100,000 other copywriters out there?
2: Well, you're channeling several wines beautifully. And so let me- <laughs> I'm
0: good at that. My but, wife will tell you I'm good at that. Well, you're not
2: whining, you're channeling it. <laughs> but let me try to decode a couple of things here. First of all, I don't use the word art to mean painting, I use the word art to mean something that might not work, something generous, something distinctive. So William Shakespeare was certainly an artist, Marcel Duchamp was an artist, but I would argue that on a really good day when he's doing a breakthrough, Jay Abraham can be an artist as well. Most of the time, most of us don't get a chance to do art because we're too busy doing what we think of as our job, but art is available to anybody, whatever work that we do. But the essence of what I heard you say is, my clients won't let me. And therefore, I will be as mediocre as they are, which is where I was a f- five minutes ago. Get better clients. And if that feels like a catch 22, then go do the work on spec. And if it feels like you can't do the work on spec, then you finally should admit you're not that good at it. There's lots of copy editors in the world, and you're just one of them. And I think it's possible to be better than that. The other thing I would say is it's naive and incorrect to assert that businesses always hire the single most effective freelancer for every job. What they usually hire are the freelancers who, in addition to doing the work, are easy to work with, help them through their fear, who are fun. So you could be the best at what you do, your category of one, without necessarily being the person who adds six basis points to their beating the control cold letter. It might just be that you're the easiest one to work with in this industry. It might just be that you're the one that's the easiest to tell their boss about. Because when someone's hiring you, they're not spending their own money. They're spending the boss's money. So what they're buying from you is not what you do. What they're buying from you is a story. And it's the story to tell their boss because they don't want to get in trouble. In fact, they want to get a smile. So when someone says, hey, great news, I hired Rob you know, Rob, he's blah, 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 blah. And the boss is good work. Well, then you've earned your paycheck right there.
1: I want to ask about emotional skills, because when I heard about this, it seems so obvious, yet I don't think of it day to day in my work with clients. I don't think about the emotional skills that I'm developing or how that gets me paid. How important is that today for freelancers?
2: Oh, I think it's the most important part. And here's why. A great client doesn't give you the trust and the resources you need unless they believe you. And believing you is not a matter of proof. Believing you is a matter of belief. And that's based on emotions. So everybody in the direct marketing world is afraid. They're afraid that their next campaign won't work. They're afraid that GDRP will land them in some Turkish prison. They're afraid (laughs) that they're a fraud. And that fear is why everyone's copying everyone else. That fear is why everyone seems so selfish, why there's always a squeeze page, why no one will play the long game. They won't play the long game because they're afraid they'll be dead before the long game arrives. So if you are the person who can assuage that fear through your approach, through your demeanor, through your professionalism, through your back and forth, through your reputation, then you're worth hiring. You know, so a simple example, which is slightly outside this area, is the world of professional speaking, which I've been lucky enough to be in for 30 years. And I'm pretty good at it, but there are people who have never heard of who are better at it than me. So why do I get paid more than them and why do I have to turn down so many gigs? It's not because I'm the best at public speaking. It's because the person hiring me gets the satisfaction of knowing that they can tell everyone they hired me. And so my reputation causes me to have a waiting list and my waiting list causes me to have a reputation. And the same thing is true for the magic, mysterious world of high-end copywriting. Because everyone has a keyboard. Everyone knows the alphabet. Everyone could write a note. Your note might be a little bit better. But what's mostly better is your reputation and your ability to work with emotional labor will get the client to change the offer in the first place. We'll get the client to stop acting like a selfish jerk. We'll get the client to have the patience and the generosity to do great work. And if you're the one who was in the room when the client made the right decision, you get part of the credit.
0: So yeah, when you talk about fear, there's almost two sides to this. You know, the client has their fear of hiring the wrong person. A lot of our audience is you know, just starting out or you know, struggling through the first year or two of really trying to establish themselves. And there's you know, the resistance, the fear of getting started or the fear of not knowing sure. that you're good enough, all of that stuff. We're basically dealing with fear on both sides of the equation.
2: Exactly. And they play off each other, which is why there are also people who are listening to this who've been struggling for 12 years. And they justify their mediocre work by saying they got to pay the bills. And the problem is, no one promised you that this was going to work. So, my suggestion is get another job doing something brain dead that pays the bills, and then use your spare time to do great work for great clients who deserve it. You can't compromise yourself to greatness. You can't be mediocre on the way to being really, really great. You have to begin with a very clear vision. Who's it for? What's it for? What do you do? What don't you do? What are you known for? How far out on an edge are you willing to go? You know, so when I think about our mutual friend, Margot, anyone could have started her list. Who knows how to type and write? Anyone, right? She's not gifted from Thor and Loki and Jupiter, she just decided to do this work. Well, she doesn't get paid for it or didn't get paid for it for a really long time. That's why almost no one does it because they're saying, well, yeah, but I need to be busy today. Who's going to pay me to write for them today? So you end up working for some second rate health insurance company writing second rate work. Well, then why are you surprised that you don't have anybody calling you to work for them again?
1: So it sounds like it's it's a decision you make. And then it's also something you mentioned reminded me of just, niching down too, that if you want to be great, you need to niche down, which is what a lot of copywriters fight against. You know, they want to write for everybody to get those jobs. So right. How important is the niching down?
2: That's a great expression that I've never heard before. I don't use that expression. In my new book, the core idea of This Is Marketing is the smallest viable market. So you've all heard, it from, you know, in the lean entrepreneur world, it's the minimum viable product. Well, I think that for most of us, we succeed when we obsess about the smallest viable audience. Because if you eliminate off the bat 99.9% of all the things you could do, if you eliminate 99% of all the people who could hire you, say, so not allowed, just these people, you're going to treat them differently. You're going to learn different skills. You're going to stand differently. You're not going to walk away when it gets tough because you've got nowhere to go. And that idea that you're on a desert island, not on a giant planet, changes the way you deal with your resources. So by obsessing about the smallest viable audience, what ends up happening is you succeed. Not succeed on the world scale. You're not going to be as big as Amazon. Of course you won't. You're a soloist. But you will succeed. And that will give you the posture of a success. It will give you the reputation of a success. And then slowly you can make your audience bigger. But back to the first thing I said at the beginning. If you say you can hire anyone and we're anyone, you're sort of doomed.
0: Yeah, I really like that idea too, because we see this with the people that we talk to on an almost daily basis. You know, when you talk about that minimal viable audience, and I, I love that term, you're also turning your back on this massively huge market of people that, and it's so scary to look at that market and say, I'm not going to work with you. And what could literally be, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. And I'm going to work with my small focused market and get enough for me.
2: More than enough. And this is the, you know, try the other method first. Okay. It didn't work. I'm guaranteeing (laughs) you it didn't work. Now, what are you going to do? Well, Why don't you just do copywriting for plastic surgeons in New Jersey? Because once you are known as the expert and the successful one for plastic surgeons in New Jersey, don't you think you can have 100 clients a year? I think you could. That's enough. It's more than enough. You're done.
0: Yeah. Again, it's great. So Seth, I'd love to jump all the way back, you know, almost 20 years to when you launched Permission Marketing. It was actually the first book of yours that I ever read. A really smart boss gave it to me when I was working in an ad agency and said, you got to read this. In the last 20 years, so much has changed online with the amount of information that gets shared with the things that we've seen that are happening in Google and Facebook. And I'm really curious to jump into the how has permission and getting permission changed over the last 20 years? What would you do differently if you had to rewrite that book today?
2: Well, I've intentionally not rewritten the book because if I did, I'd have to rewrite it every week. But the fundamental concept has not changed one bit. The amount of lying and tricking and regulation and nonsense around people who don't get at the idea continues apace. But You know, the guys at Google took the idea and turned it into the multi-multi-billion-dollar AdWords business. And the guys at Groupon built it on permission marketing. Go down the list. One company after another is built on a very simple principle that anticipated personal and relevant messages always do better than spam. Anticipated still matters, personal still matters, and relevant still matters. And spam is still the enemy. What's shifted is there's more spam than ever before. That we thought the world was busy in 1999. We had no idea. There were no smartphones then. You watch someone walking down the street, they're going to absorb 100 messages before the light even turns green. So you are got all this clutter. And the way almost all selfish marketers have decided to cut through clutter is by making more clutter, by increasing their frequency, by skirting the rules, spamming more people. The alternative is to make a promise and to keep it the alternative is to be missed if you were gone if you didn't send that email how many people would write in and say where is it so i would like to believe on my blog it's a pretty big number if i didn't blog tomorrow i would probably hear from a bunch of people the question for you and your clients is if you didn't send out the i hate this word blast if you didn't send out that blast tomorrow how many people would say where was it and if the answer is no one You don't have permission. You're a spammer.
1: Hey, we're just jumping into the show today to tell you a little bit more about the copywriter underground. Rob, what do you like best about this membership?
0: So this membership community is full of copywriters that are investing in their businesses and taking what they do seriously. Everything is focused around three ideas, copywriting and getting better at the craft that we all do, marketing and getting in front of the right customers so that you can charge more and earn more, and also mindset so that you can get out of your head and focus on the things that will help you be successful at what we do. There's a private Facebook group for the members of the community and we also send out a monthly newsletter that's full of advice again on those three areas copywriting, marketing and mindset things that you can mark up and you know tear out put them in your files save them for whatever and it's not going to get lost in your email inbox. Carol, what do you like about the Copywriter Underground?
1: So I I love the monthly hot seat calls where our members have a chance to sit in the hot seat and ask a big question or get ideas or talk through a challenge in their business because we all learn from those, those situations. And then I also feel like the templates we include in the membership are valuable because who wants to reinvent the wheel? And Rob and I end up sharing a lot of the templates and resources we use in our own businesses. So I would definitely want to grab those.
0: So if you are interested in joining a community of copywriters that are investing in their business and in themselves and trying to do more, get more clients, earn more money consistently, go to the thecopywriterunderground.com to learn more. Now back to the program.
1: I want to ask about feeling really uncomfortable and I get the concept with myself and stepping out of my own comfort zone. But recently you mentioned making your clients feel uncomfortable too, which really stood out to me. So to do great work, to do remarkable work, is it not just about making yourself feel uncomfortable, but it's about bringing people along with you and pushing them outside of their comfort zone too?
2: Yeah, great question, Kira. So I make people uncomfortable all the time (laughs) because I'm very passionate about the change that I'm trying to make. If you're not trying to make a change happen, then you're doing nothing. Change, maybe it could be something as trivial as change a non customer into a customer, but ideally it's something bigger and better than that. Change a struggling parent into a successful parent, an uninspired student into an inspired student. If you're going to make change happen, it will always be accompanied by tension. And the tension is, it might not work. The tension is, I might get in trouble. The tension is, How much more do I need to know before we say yes? The tension is, what will I tell my boss? The tension is, can we do it tomorrow instead of today? If you can't bring tension to the table, then all you are is a waiter, right? Then all you are is bringing something from the kitchen to the table. And if you get a really good waiting job in a really good restaurant, your tips will be okay, but you're not changing anybody. And I think if you're going to do this work carefully enough that you're even listening to a podcast like this, you want more than that. And what you want is to change a lousy, selfish, short-term thinking in an organization into the opposite. What you want is not just to work on a movie, but to work on a movie that's a classic 50 years later. What you want is to do something that matters. And in order to do that, you've got to be willing to bring tension into the room.
1: How do we bring that tension into the room? I'm just not quite even sure where I would start and know how to do that.
2: Well, I got so many examples, but the most important is you do it on purpose. You know what change you're trying to make, right? So there was a there was an ad agency in the UK, I believe it was called St. Luke's. This was years ago. Won all the awards. Thirty person firm. And what happens in the ad agency business is after you win all the awards, you get more clients, which means you hire more people. But the people you hire, you're in a hurry, so you got to hire. Uh, B people, because all the A people are taken. And that gets you more clients. And then your work starts getting more average, because bigger means average. And then Sachi and Sachi acquires you, and you have to do a four-year buyout, and then you're done. That's the arc. Well, these folks saw this happening. They said, we don't want to do that. We just want to do what we do. But we can't do that if we're going to get bigger. So here's what we're going to do. We're not going to hire any more people. If we're not going to hire any more people... not going to take any new clients. The only way we'll take a client is if an old client leaves. So once they took this decision, everything changed for them. Because you're sitting in the meeting, pitching your client on this bold new idea. And the client says, "Ah, I don't know. It's so bold. I don't know if my boss will go for it. And so the partner folds his arms and says, well, I don't know if you guys know this, but we have a policy we don't take a new client unless we have an old client. We have a waiting list. So do you want to be one of our clients or not? And all sorts of status roles start getting played in this moment. Because does the accounting exec want to go back to the boss and say, uh-oh, we don't get to work with the best ad agency in the United Kingdom anymore because they fired us. Really? Why did they fire us? They fired us because I didn't have the guts to run an ad. Mm. They can't afford that. That's too risky. So the safer thing to do is let the greatest ad agency in the United Kingdom decide this ad is worth running. That is how you build a great ad agency. Back when Jay Shiat and Lee Clow were running Shiat Day, Steve Jobs sort of lost his nerve about the 1984 commercial. Didn't test that well. The board didn't think it was that great. And Jay and Lee said, fine, we'll run it out of our own pocket. And they didn't even have to run it out of their own pocket. Just the act of them saying that called Steve's bluff and brought tension to the table. Mm -hmm. And they were basically saying, aren't you big enough to own this? Don't you want to do something great? That's how you do it on purpose. And that comes with saying no. It comes from being willing to walk away in a principled way based on the promises that you make. I'm a copywriter. I'm not going to put my name on this. You can do it without me. But if you want my name on this work, it's got to be better than that
0: feels to me like all of this stuff has to start with us, which is really the message of, you know, linchpin and so much of your writing is that you almost have to ignore everything that's out there and become the change first. And then the change almost starts to happen with the clients that you, that you get or with the work that you're doing.
2: Ding, 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 ding.
0: That's exactly
2: right. And that's why I'm not super popular, which is fine with me because I'm not trying to average my way to popularity I'm trying to be specific you're exactly right you know the book I wrote before this is in marketing is called what to do when it's your turn and it's always your turn and people don't want to hear that it's always their turn but
0: it is so once I've made that change then or once you know we're on that pathway because it's it's probably not you know binary it probably takes a long time and it's consistent and constant how do we know when we've got something to the point where it's, you know, ready to ship, you know, where we're not holding on to something too long or we're not, you know, going too early? I'm almost asking for a checklist even though I know there's no checklist, sure. but how do we know, you know, when the time is right?
2: There are very few people who go too early. So if you're asking yourself this question, it's probable that you're holding on to it too long. The other thing to remember is you learned something about copywriting, and what you learned about is dry tests and segmentation. You're not going to launch anything to everyone. Launch it to a few people. See what happens. Test and measure. Put it in the world. See what happens. The part of the magic of a daily blog is I've done 7,000 tests about what works and what doesn't. Half my blog posts are below average, and I wouldn't have known which ones they were until after I published them. And That's how you learn. By shipping the work. So, if you view your work half the time as a teacher, because your customers are students, and the rest of the time as a student, because the people you're writing for are your teachers, you will continue this cycle of getting better.
1: Is it okay to be in a stage where you might not know what your change is yet? I mean, I love this idea of if we all knew what our change was, the world would be a better place. But is it okay to have five years where you're trying to figure it out, or is that just an excuse?
2: Well, I think should gets us into a lot of trouble. But no, I think if you're a professional, you know what your change is. You should shift it over time. But if you say to a plumber, what change are you here to make? The plumber will say, I'm here to change your faucet from a leaking faucet to a non-leaking faucet. Right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And if you say to a copywriter, what change are you trying to make? And they say, I'm just trying to pay the bills. (laughs) Then they're not a professional. They're a hack. And there's plenty of room to make a living as a hack, but you'll make $30 an hour and you won't make a lot of change happen because it's all going to be an accident.
0: I think a lot of, you know, what we do to, and and maybe why people have a hard time wrapping our heads around this is something that I think you've written about this a little bit. And that is that brilliance comes in small bursts and a lot of the stuff that we're doing to be great is still mundane tasks in order to free ourselves to do, you know, what the brilliant thing is. You know, it's the learning, it's the prep work, it's, you know, paying the dues, in order to be able to you know, launch the awesome thing for the client or for ourselves?
2: Yeah, I'll go with that for a little bit. I think that it's unlikely that most of the people listening to this have failed as much as you have or as Kira has or as I have. And once they've failed that many times, then they can say that they've earned it. But failing more is what learning looks like.
1: All right. Well, I want to talk about being a genius because this always resonates with me. Again, a lot of copywriters have an imposter complex and don't think they're good enough and compare themselves to more experienced copywriters. So what would you say to them when they feel like, hey, I'm not a genius. I will never be a genius. And that's just their cop out. Can we all be a genius?
2: Well, if we carefully define the word, sure. So Albert Einstein really messed this up. I talked about it in my Akimbo podcast, I think number two. Twelve or fourteen, Albert Einstein said, "Well, what you got to do apparently is have crazy hair, not know which house is yours. So you have to paint the front door a funny color. You have to win a yeah. Nobel Prize, etc." And that's certainly the you know the Einstein Tesla version of genius. But I would argue that when a five-year-old kid sees one of his parents really wrestling with tension and walks up and gives them a hug, that's an act of genius as well. Because he has solved a problem that he has never seen before and he has solved it with humanity. And that isn't a giant act of genius like E equals MC squared, but it's an act of genius. So for me, anytime you're not a cog in the system, anytime you dig deep to bring something real, to cause a connection to happen and make a change without a manual, you've performed an act of genius. Well, My word for someone who performs an act of genius is a genius. So I think everyone has done that at least once in their lifetime. At least once in their lifetime, they've shown up in the right place at the right time with the right words to make a positive change happen. And if that's true, then our job, the thing we're actually getting paid for is to do it again. And the only way you do that is by doing it wrong first. Wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong and wrong. If you're not willing to be wrong, it's unlikely you're going to be right.
0: And then once that happens, we have to be able to recognize that something's going right. You know, We have to recognize our genius so that we can replicate that or replicate the process to create more genius.
2: Exactly. When we think about someone like Miles Davis, he recorded Kind of Blue, which is generally considered the most successful jazz record of all time, in two and a half days. And if I compare that to Leonard Cohen, who took seven years to write the song Hallelujah, one song, well, who's more productive? I'm sure that Hallelujah was an active genius after six months. The rest of the seven years was hiding. And what Miles understood was more editing and more retakes wasn't going to make Kind of Blue a better record. It was going to make it a worse record. And so if we can develop a style and an approach and a reputation where being ourselves, finding our true voice, gets easier and easier then your acts of genius become more common
0: yeah and i see that you've you've done this you know we referred to the 7000 plus straight you know blog posts those kinds of things that it's really the showing up it's the you know even if an idea is not all the way there you know it's being there so i'm curious seth are there things that you wish you know looking at the kinds of things that you have done things that you wish that you had done significantly differently at all in your career
2: well I feel like I've done a lousy job of being as brave or as generous as I should be with the privilege and the opportunity that I have because I get stuck in my own way and it's hard to be as connected to as many people as you would like to connect to. And I try to protect the flicker of forward energy that I've been able to keep going for all these years because I'm worried. That if I get too overwhelmed, it'll go away. Cause it's hard to show up with a new thing when you haven't finished the old thing yet. But at the same time, I realize that I won the birthday lottery and I truly am in a position of privilege and I and I waste it every day.
1: I wanna know what frustrates you the most. You know, you have your change and let's say your mission. When you look at freelancers today, and if you want to go specifically with copywriters, what are we doing that just like drives you mad
2: oh it's the self-talk it's not just copywriters it's yeah. it's everywhere we look you know we say here's the key there's the door go ahead and unlock it and they say well can I have a money back guarantee and you say well yeah not only that the key's free And I'm like yeah maybe I'll unlock it tomorrow <gasps> and I get that it used to be you didn't have proximity you didn't have access to the building you didn't know the right people I get that When I was starting out, there were only three business magazines, so the chances that you were going to have a column in one of them was close to zero. But now, it's free. Just write a Medium post. Who's stopping you? Well, we know who's stopping you. And it's frustrating for me, as a teacher, to find people who don't want to enroll. And then it's doubly frustrating to find the cynics who think that they should find a reason why people like me don't have your best interests at heart that we must have some scam going on and there must be some trick to it. And at least for me, there isn't. I'm a teacher and this is my chosen area in which to teach. And you know, the Alt-MBA has had 2,500 grads. The marketing seminars had 6,000 because they work. But it should be 10 times that. And the reason it's not 10 times that is because people are afraid. And the reason they're afraid is they've been brainwashed into believing that the status quo is safe When in fact, the status quo is the riskiest thing you can do.
0: Yeah. And when you talk about being a teacher, you know, I think about Professor Christensen at Harvard and the ways that education is changing. And I think you've done a lot of changing how marketing is taught. But I want to ask from the other side, how do we show up as better students to be able to learn the things that, you know, teachers like you, like, you know, Jay Abraham or, or others, how do we actually prepare ourselves better so that we can learn and then execute?
2: There's no test. There's no test, and the best teachers are not accredited. If there's no test asking, will this be on the test, is a foolish question. If there's no test asking, what is the minimum amount I can do to get through this and get certified? That's a silly question. It's more like saying, this is an all-you-can-eat high-end sushi buffet. You've already paid, and starting tomorrow, You're going on a long walk where there's going to be not enough food. Then the question is, how much can I put on my plate? That's the way to think about it, right? Not how little can I get away with, but how much can I engage with? And that got boiled out of us in third grade and seventh grade and in college, because there we were overwhelmed and we focused on the minimum. And the minimum isn't interesting to me, And our reflex needs to shift to, I can't believe I get to learn all this stuff. Yeah. One thing that got me in a lot of trouble when I wrote about it, one of my most popular posts, which is still true to this day, uh, my opinion on this, is that libraries are dying. They're sort of a, a warehouse where books go to die. And that the number one use of most American suburban libraries is to check out DVDs for free for people who used to belong to Blockbuster. And it's such a shame because... We're talking about a million lifetimes worth of material and knowledge and insight just sitting there combined with the fact that your internet thing is hooked up to another billion lives worth of knowledge. But all we can do is watch cat videos because we've persuaded ourselves that we're too tired to learn anything. And that's crazy.
1: Yeah. No more cat videos for me. I We've talked a lot about freelancers <laughs> and I'm wondering about the evolution from freelancer to entrepreneur because I feel like I wouldn't consider myself an entrepreneur, but I would like to move in that direction. And I guess the question really is, what is the biggest difference between the entrepreneur and the freelancer?
2: It is a favorite topic of mine. So here we go. I've been both. So I'm speaking from personal experience. Successful freelancers say to themselves, wow, if I could just hire somebody to do the work I do, and I could get six of those people, then I could keep a little bit of their all of their income. I could make more money, have more impact and not work as hard. So what we end up doing is hiring people who aren't quite as good as us, because if they were as good as us, they wouldn't work for us. And then we give our clients work that's not quite as good as they expected. And then to make it worse, every time we get busy or every time we start running out of money, we hire the cheapest, best available person, who's us, to do the work. So we end up, completely overwhelmed, disappointing everybody, and backed into a corner because they don't cohabitate well. Freelancers get paid when we work. So if I give a speech or I write a blog post or I write a book, I wrote it, every word of it. I have no staff. Whereas entrepreneurs get paid when they sleep. They build something bigger than themselves. Their job is to think of anything that needs to be done and hire someone else to do it. That's their job. So Larry Ellison doesn't code at Oracle. Tim Cook doesn't design at Apple. Not his job. And if you're going to be an entrepreneur, be an entrepreneur and approach it with rigor and say, all right, what would a corporation that does direct marketing look like? So that's what Wonderman did. He built the biggest direct marketing firm in the world. And Lester, who I have known for many, many years, is a good copywriter, but he didn't copyright anymore. Not his job. His job is to build a firm. And any day he picks up a pencil, he is derelict in his duty. Should not be using a pencil. So I don't think you can gradually go from freelancer to entrepreneur. And I know this because I tried it and it almost killed me. And I was an entrepreneur for a long time. I built a company, I sold it for a bunch, and then I built another company. And I realized I didn't like being an entrepreneur. So now I'm back to being a freelancer and that's a different life. And you act differently when you're in that life.
0: Yeah. I I mean, so much, so much to think about, you know, as, as we've talked about fear and change and all of that, Seth, we've basically got this platform of copywriters who listen to us. Is there one message that you would say, you know, let's say we're all totally open to listening and learning. You could get one thing into our heads right now. What would that be?
2: Well, I think I would say there isn't one thing. And if you're looking for one thing, I fear that that might be a symptom of why you're stressed. That this is a profession and it is not a job, nor is it a task. That the task of, I need to send a letter to all of these people or I need to write a sales page, there are more and more fast and cheap and easy ways to do that. And very soon it's going to be done by a computer. Computers can already read x-rays better than humans can. It's not hard to imagine that they're going to be able to take the 10,000 words of which we mostly use 400 and figure out how to write decent testable pages. So that's not your job to do tasks. Your job is to weave together so many disparate things, people and places and emotions and insight and innovation and history and knowledge and most of all persuading the people you work for to act like humans. That's your job. And so if you're looking for the one key, I'm afraid there isn't one. And that's why you're distracted. That what we're talking about is doing the very difficult emotional labor, as Kira said, of being present and creating tension and causing change to happen in such a way that there is an insatiable demand For what you do, because it's so rare and it's based on abundance and connection and generosity and trust and coordination. That if you are that person, the dervish that makes all the magic come together, it's hard for me to imagine that you'll ever have to look for work again.
1: All right, Seth. Well, we want to thank you for your time and for sharing everything with us. If our listeners want to find you, where should they find your podcast, your blog, and your hub? Your new the book as well. Oh, thank you. Yeah,
2: The new blog just launched, and it's at Seth's.blog. The new book comes out in November. It's called This is Marketing. It's available at all finer and also bookstores of ill repute. And <laughs> the podcast is called Akimbo, A-K-I-M-B-O. And it's about bending the culture. And you can find all my blog posts just by typing Seth into your favorite search
0: engine. And I just want to add, as far as the podcast goes, you know, as a copywriter listening to that, Every single episode, at least so far, there's something that is completely applicable to, you know, creating sales messages or interacting with clients, with customers. It really is a tremendous resource. Everybody who's listening will know your name and and likely has read, you know, a book or two of yours, but with so much of the stuff that you put out in the world, Seth, it's worth consuming and more than that, it's worth actually using to, to get better. So thank you for that.
2: Oh, you guys are really kind. And I want to thank you on behalf of the people who are listening. I know personally how hard it is to keep showing up and doing this work. And I'm grateful that you guys are putting the time and the care into it. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Seth. That's
0: our interview with Seth Godin. Each time I listen, it's a reminder of why we built the Copywriter Club in the first place and why our mission of helping copywriters grow their business and improve their skills is so important to both Kira and myself. It takes a pretty healthy helping of Chatspa to think that I have insights to add to that interview and Seth's advice. And yeah, I'm, just, I'm going to go ahead and give it a go. So first of all, Seth said something near the end of our discussion that really stuck out to me this time more than it ever has before. He said, the status quo is the riskiest thing you do. Maybe it's the fact that we've worked with so many struggling copywriters this year or the thinking process that I've been going through recently as I've been trying to figure out what I should do differently and, and even things to do bigger in order to have a bigger impact with what we're doing at the Copywriter Club. Whatever it is, this idea that doing what we've been doing, even if it's working is the riskiest path forward. We all need to be thinking about what's next, what's next that's gonna work better, what's next that will help me make a bigger impact, what's next that will help me get in front of the right people, what's next that help me find the clients that I really wanna work with or do the work that I want. All of those things break the status quo. And let me just mention, this is exactly what the Copywriter Accelerator program I mentioned at the top of the show is all about. If Seth has got you thinking about what you need to do next in order to get out of the rut or change up the status quo so that you can start creating your own art, go to the copywriteraccelerator.com to learn more. And don't forget your code POD200 to save $200 if you decide to join that, if it's the right move for you right now. One other thing I want to mention, Seth talked about story. He mentioned St. Luke's, the cooperative London ad agency named for the patron saint of the arts that came out of nowhere to become the UK ad agency of the year. I think it was in 1997. They made some amazing ads in the 1990s for clients like British Telecom and Sky TV, Ikea Body Shop. They were different in a lot of ways, including the fact that everyone that they employed was an owner of the agency. Each person got the same number of shares at the end of the year. Management structure was incredibly flat and everyone was invited to comment and critique everyone else's work. Everyone wasn't paid the same, but they all knew how much each other made. They experimented with hot desking, which It's pretty common now, but that's where everybody sits in different spots uh, every different day. No one had an office. Uh, The staff all had time to pursue interests like filmmaking or music as part of their jobs. In the 90s, this was really unique. Google has done a lot of this stuff since, but nobody was doing it in the 90s. St. Luke's was the only one. And in fact, it was so unique at the time, they made a documentary about it. Doing all of those things differently led to some really amazing creative work and lots of awards. And it also created an environment that almost killed the agency when a couple of clients left and income dropped significantly, two of the founders were forced out. And all of that goes back to what Seth had to say about failure and failing enough to know whether what you're doing is making a difference. The same forces that made St. Luke's great also brought it to its knees. And That's the risk that you take when you do things differently you can have some amazing successes, and sometimes you have some pretty big falls. If you're not failing, you may not be trying hard enough to do something truly unique. Uh, By the way, the agency is still around. In fact, it'd be a lot of fun to uh, interview one of the writers or or possibly the CEO of St. Luke's today. They still do things differently. In fact, over the past couple of years, they've recaptured some of the positive PR that followed the agency in the 90s. So that's the St. Luke story. But what's your story? The idea that you do work so good there's a line of people waiting to work for you and if you only take one or two projects a month or you only take a project if an old client leaves that story might help keep clients engaged and coming back that's one kind of story but it's not the only kind so think about your story why should clients choose you what's the thing that makes you stand out? What's your story? Going back to what Seth said, that's a big part of the reason why we should be doing spec work, those projects or that art that attracts the right people to us. It may not be paid at first, but it is great. It's fun. It's involving. It's different and superior. Okay. Before we wrap, just let me add this final reminder of your exclusive podcast listener discount of $200 when you go to the com. but do it now because that discount expires next week. And that's the end of this episode of the Copywriter Club podcast. The intro music was composed by copywriter and songwriter Addison Rice. The outro was composed by copywriter and songwriter David Muntner. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please visit Apple Podcasts to leave your review of the show. Don't miss our other podcasts at aiforcreativeentrepreneurs.com. You can also watch that on YouTube or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening and we will see you next week. Copywriters coming together
2: To help the world write better Copy and make more
0: money Kira and Raps Copywriters Club